Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy. And is Uber just paying for a hitchhike? Mm, that's, that, that is a hot take. I think, it, I think it is. Like they found a way to commodify something that really should be free. Yeah, like but you think it's about safer like this way. People, yeah, but it's still a stranger picking you up. I mean, so is a taxi, though. Yeah, but taxis are regulated. They have licenses. They, like, I mean, I think Uber is regulated. As I mean, I don't use Uber, so I haven't really kept up with mm. like the potential controversy or what people are saying. But I know that was a big thing that the taxis were saying was that Uber is unregulated. We are regulated. Hmm. I mean, I think the rules are probably different, but I don't know. That's just like we were like we were just talking about. That's just another group of people who are upset that someone else is doing it better. You know, that's also a good way of looking at it. They just <laughs> revolutionized hitchhiking. Yeah. And they found. But yeah, it's just weird because I think of hitchhiking as something where a person has like no money. They're lost. And they're like, hey, can you just help me out? Give me a lift somewhere yeah mm -hmm. and now people are basically paying to do that thing mm -hmm. so it started as like a maybe a desperation move or something you would do if you were broke and you needed something for free yeah and they're like hey we can probably find a way to make some money mm. off of this yeah i mean kind of like it, it's definitely more convenient and cheaper than than a taxi is it is it substantially cheaper? Again, I, I, I've never. Uh, I I mean I think so. I've I mean I've been in a handful of Ubers and like maybe two taxis in my life. So I'm definitely not a good person to ask. But I if, from my memory, it is cheaper and more and faster. I think. I could see it being faster because do you pay? Is it like a flat rate for the trip with Uber? Or does it it's, work like a taxi where it's based on the time and the distance that's being covered? It, like it's based on the time and the distance, but it's not like, I think it's predetermined versus like you get in the taxi and then they hit the, yeah, the meter, the meter starts. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's why taxis are a little bit more expensive, but yeah. Have you ever been, driving and like see somebody walking in like a snowstorm or like a rainstorm or something and they just look like this i don't know like nice old person and you just want to stop and say hey like do you need a ride somewhere but you don't want to be creepy so you don't stop and ask <laughs> that would be that as soon as you were telling that i was like you're gonna come across as like you're up to something yeah like i just want to be nice but you know people are definitely gonna assume i'm up to something well, that would be my thought is that if someone was, yeah, like you said, in a snowstorm or in a rainstorm and you offer them a lift yeah. and you have no idea who they are, it's going to be like, what is this? Like if I was the person on the street in the snowstorm or in the rain and a stranger approached me in their car and said, Hey, you're out in the rain. Can I give you a lift? I'd be like, no, you're up to something. And I would just keep walking. Yeah. I mean, it literally is stranger danger, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I don't know. It's something that I feel from time to time. <laughs> that's sort of what an uber it like it's just a stranger in their car yeah but you have a contract on your phone saying like you wanted me to do this i i know but it's the same <laughs> same idea you're just letting some stranger show up and 
you have no idea if they're, I know they have like the rating system with the stars and whatnot, mm-hmm. but to me, a taxi feels maybe a bit safer. I don't know if it actually is. It's just an illusion or a, yeah, like a biased way that, you know, the brain thinks or the brain works, but it feels yeah. less sketchy I mean, getting in a taxi than an Uber. I guess it is a little bit less sketchy, more, more tried and true. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The Uber rating system is maybe nice though. Cause you can, you can choose who your driver is. I think I don't really know. I guess I don't, I don't have Uber on my phone or I don't, yeah. I don't use it. So I'm not a hundred percent sure how it works. Yeah. This is an outsider's can, perspective looking in. Yeah. Where I'm like, it looks like pain for hitchhiking. That's kind of mm. the way I see it. Having not experienced yeah. it. Mm-hmm. as a consumer yeah fair enough fair enough but uh yeah it's you get a little bit more information i think so that you can choose the best driver and vehicle for you um not unlike choosing the best exercise for you or the people you work with or the people you work with exactly i mean isn't that what selecting exercises are like all about. I mean, yeah, you take the information that you have and you you work it through and you you come out and and solve the problem, you know. And fortunately, we're not limited to one exercise um at a time. That but, that's true. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I think it's like I don't know about you how you view exercise selection, but I think it's the importance of it is in relation to the fact that it can drive adaptation or drive progress ultimately like we select exercises to help improve whatever quality someone's looking to address or we select exercises to continue to make progress it's ultimately it's the it's a driver of change or it maximizes the adaptations yeah we're going yeah, definitely. i don't know if you look at it the same way yeah certainly like it's there's you know you look at the picture that you have of your athlete and like what they're capable of, what they're not capable of, what they need to be capable of. And, you know, you're kind of filling in the pieces, like what is it that we need to do or what's the best thing we can do um, or the best attribute, I guess, we can uh, improve upon to improve your overall performance. And then you're choosing exercises to address that for sure. Yeah, so, like yeah a, it is, like it is crude, definitely the driver of change. Like a crude or like unrefined example I can think of is like, if you had an individual who wanted to improve their vertical jump and then you decide, okay, I'm going to do three by three vertical jump on a jump mat. So that way I can record your highest value or highest score. And then I'm going to select after that for you to do squats. Let's, let's say barbell back squats five by five so we can get stronger. And the movement is pretty similar. Then you, keep doing that workout. So you do the jumps, you do the squats. You should see the jump trend upwards. And then at some point it might start to level off or it drops and you go, okay, this exercise isn't improving this adaptation anymore. Let's change it to a barbell jump squat. Now the load is lighter. We're moving faster. So now I've changed the exercise. And then in theory, we want to see that vertical jump score start to trend upwards. 
again. So I think that's a, it's a very simplistic answer because we're only looking at one movement and selecting one exercise, but we could make the assumption that because we change that exercise, we've now helped the person progress forward and we've selected a new exercise to continue to maximize or drive whatever changes we're looking for, which in this case was vertical jump performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I mean, that's, that's a hundred percent. I agree with you there. Like that's how my programming works with my powerlifting clients. Um, I mentioned it on a previous stream, but couldn't remember the name, but I remember the name now. Mike Tashur from Reactive Training Systems talks about emerging strategies as their new method for, um, you know, periodization. So if you're interested, you can check that out. But it is basically the idea where we need to, well, you find out what works for the athlete and you do that thing until it stops working. And then you do something different until that stops working. And then you do something different. And then over time you get a good idea of what works well for that athlete. Um, but it is very much like you, you do something until it stops working. You do something until you stop seeing the change you want to see. And then you do something else that'll produce that change or a different change. That's also positive. Something like that. Yeah. And you're trying to select an exercise or change the exercise to address specifically whatever it is that you're, you're looking at. Cause yeah, the, the exercise selection comes a little bit later. Like you, at this point, you already would have an idea of the person you're working with, the sport, the activity that demands on them. And then you're able to make some decisions around those things as to what exercises will you specifically select to, to address those, those things. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then there's a few things that go into that decision. You know, you got to obviously know the person and know what it is you need to be working on. And we covered a lot of that in the athlete assessment episodes um, the last couple of times. So, you know, if you haven't listened to those, I think that's valuable to listen to. Um, and then you need to know that the exercise that you're selecting is in fact addressing the issue uh, that you identified as a weakness, you know, and then on top of that, is this the best exercise or at least a good exercise for that particular individual? You know, you could select, like if I'm looking to develop, um, like hip extension strength or glute strength specifically for a sumo deadlifter, then maybe I'll choose a conventional deadlift because it's going to be a little bit better for hip extension specifically. But if that hurts their back, not really a good option. You know, if they can't do a good sumo deadlift and they lift entirely with their back and not with their hips, then not a good option. Defeats so, the purpose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or, I mean, there's also the potential that you choose. And I mean, obviously a conventional deadlift is going to develop hip extension, at least in some capacity, but maybe for some reason, I think a quad extension is a good thing to develop hip extension. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like at some point you need to have an idea of what's going on at a, mm -hmm. like a higher level or a previous level to be able to appropriately select exercises because if you think it's going to do a but it's actually doing b then you're you're already lost at that point yeah and and maybe b is helpful but you know but you, not helpful you, to what you thought it was going to be yeah helpful exactly. to exactly do you follow do you use like a skeleton plan at all 
or anything in terms of like selecting your exercises? You have like a predetermined kind of three or four categories or slots you want to fill. And then it's, you're selecting specific exercises based on the person and their training needs, or you just kind of build it from scratch every time. Um, It is. I mean, for, for the first one, it's kind of from scratch. Um, like when I just start working with somebody, but, um, after I've been working with somebody for a little bit, it does become kind of a skeleton where like it's, so most of my athletes will squat twice, deadlift twice, bench three times in a week, something like that. Is that Um, because bench is the most important? So it gets a third time. Maybe. It could be that. (laughs) Uh, No, that's because you can recover a lot faster from bench because it's a lot less taxing because you're using a lot less weight. Um, That makes sense. Yeah. Um, Some people will bench four times. Some people will squat three times. Some people will deadlift only once. Um, You know, but once you get to know the person and their training schedule and their restrictions and things like that, then you have that as like a base base skeleton um the competition movement is always going to be in there at least for one slot um that that makes a lot of sense for you like it's it is it is the sport you know like that would be like as a strength and conditioning coach telling a football player to not go to practice or tell a sprinter to not go on a track for a block you know like you're just not going to do that you need to do your sport for like practicing the skill and also seeing if you're getting better. Um, so it's that's solidifying the skill. There. Well, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Cause you're, you're making changes all the time and exactly. you need to be continually doing the skill to make sure that you're incorporating those changes. Um, yeah. So that it's going to be in there for at least one slot. Um, if you're squatting or, de- or benching three times, then probably it'll be two slots. Um, and yeah, and then the extra slots um, for like main lifts, I'll call them, will be variations. Typically, if we're close to competition, they they might also be competition um, exercise. So increasing the frequency there, and then um, you know usually it works out like squat and bench on one day, deadlift bench a different day, squat and bench another day, and then deadlift by itself is pretty common. Um, so usually it'll be um, on a day where you have two main lifts, you'll have two accessories and then two torso exercises or two core exercises. Um, and then on the deadlift only day, typically it'll be three uh, accessory exercises and two torso exercises. Um, I like how you're using torso. Yeah. I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to bring I it back. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So typically that's the skeleton and then just kind of filling it in with what people need and based on, you know, what I see from uh, like how they execute their competition lift, then I'll determine they need to work on this thing or that thing. And typically a block will have like two or three focuses um, and it'll be like one upper body and one lower body typically. Um, and then all of the exercises and the cues and everything will be targeted at those things generally. Is that kind of how, uh, you look at things as well? Like you kind of start with a bit of a skeleton and then just sort of fill in the pieces. 
Yeah, I like to use the skeleton. So I, you know, well, you know that I like to have a simplistic or what are the essentials type of approach to to selecting stuff. So I don't like to have, you know, 4,500 exercises in a, you know, in a program. I, you know, if I look at the big days, I want to make sure there's some sort of a knee dominant lift. That could be a squat, split squat. Uh, it could be a true single leg, whether it was a single leg squat off a box or a pistol squat or something, but some sort of major movement to address like a knee dominant type movement. I like to include a hip dominant movement. And again, that can vary. It could be a vertical hip dominant movement, such as a, a deadlift or an RDL could be a horizontal hip movement, such as a hip thruster, but something to, to target the hip and hip extension. And then some sort of a push or pull could be on one day. I might put like, if we have two big lifts a week, one, one day might be a push. The other day might be a pull. And then I'll always have some sort of call it a special exercise or a wild card or a like a an open slot to kind of play around with the time of the year where we are in competition or the the training needs uh, for that person. So that could be anything from you know various med ball throws or weightlifting exercises or you know anything anything like that. But usually three to four exercises in a lift and targeting, you know, that type of thing. It, it might vary. One person might have a squat. Another person may have a, a split squat variant, whether it's a front foot elevated split squat or rear foot elevated, something like that, but always having some sort of wild card exercise, let's call it a knee dominant hip dominant, and then a push or a pull. And, you know, it's the idea of let's do less better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and build sound motor patterns rather than trying to do 10 exercises. Okay. Let's do three or four really, really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, so you spend a lot more time or proportionally more time on the lower body than with a big knee dominant, a big hip dominant, and then only like one or two upper bodies a week. Yeah. I mean, there's also other days right? So those would be the big days that we're training. There's all sorts of other, you know, torso accessory, um, extra exercises that'll go in on the, the other days, but these are the big, they're, they're fast, they're heavy, they're neurally demanding or some combination of all of those things. These are what I would consider like the big lift or the big lift days. So right now, for example, that's what we would do if we had a big day on the track the athletes were sprinting and moving fast. We'd come in, let's hit these three or four exercises really well and let's get out as we're on like a, an off day or a lower intensity day where they're doing some recovery stuff, whether it's riding the bike or doing some tempo running or something like that. Then we'll come in and yeah, chops, lifts, carries, you know, some upper body work or repetitive work or things like that. That's where that stuff will slot in. But I don't find that stuff to be quite as important, important enough. It needs to be done, but I don't think that um, it doesn't drive as much adaptation or as much change as the, the big days will with the major, major lifts. I find. Yeah. 
can we pause for a sec? All right. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I had to. I just had to let my cat out for a sec. Again. Um, yeah. Again. <laughs> so maybe that'll be the last time, but likely not. Um. Yeah. So you were just. So you mentioned um, that sometimes it'll be a squat. Sometimes it'll be like a split squat variant. Um. I think you said deadlift or like a hip thruster. Um. What goes into that decision making? Is it like pretty individual? You know, like what works for what person, or are you? I'm choosing different things at different times of the year or something like that. 100% that's based around the, like the demands of the sport and the person. Uh, so, you know, depending on what individual characteristics they bring to the table, um, you know, some people don't back squat very well versus their front squat. So then we'll front squat them versus back squat. Um, in some cases we might put a premium on, single leg or staggered stance strength. So then we'll go to a, a split squat or a, a true single leg squat. Um, it could depend on like testing scenarios as well. So if an athlete needs to perform, you know, strength testing for a, you know, a governing body, like from the national level or something, if you know the athlete you're working with may go and be tested on their back squat or, a deadlift or whatever exercise, for example, then we want to make sure we're practicing and performing that movement so that we don't leave them high and dry when they have to go test. So, I mean, there's, I could think of hundreds of examples as to why we would select like one thing over another, but it, it generally will depend on the person in the sport. So yeah, that's going to be like the first time you see them moving in the gym, you're just going to have an idea like, okay, that actually looks really bad. Let's modify it in this way. Um, and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, I guess that's something I didn't think about either is if they have a, a governing body, it doesn't really matter, you know, if they're, if they're really good at split squatting, but they are going to be tested on back squatting, they need to figure out how to back squat. Yeah. No way around that. Yeah. And if you, I would argue as a coach, if you don't do that for them, then you've done them a bit of a dis like you've done them a pretty big disservice because mm -hmm. yeah, now they're going to sure. go into that test unprepared and they potentially don't look as good as they could in front of scouts or decision makers or, or anything like that. But yeah, that's the general um, sort of skeleton that I'll, that I'll follow. And, and again, it's, it's really just behind the idea of let's get high quality work on fewer exercises mm -hmm. rather than hit or miss quality on a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and another thing I think to think about is, is not all of your work is in the weight room. You know, for me, like the sport is in the weight room. Um, you could argue that the variations that I choose are also like sport specific, you know, a pause squat versus a squat is going to develop a lot of the same skill, um, and a lot of the same you know, hypertrophy benefits and all those sorts of things that you're going to get from the competition lift are going to happen in your variations as well. Um, as well as working on specific parts of that movement in more detail or more emphasis. Um, you know, so we need a lot of big days in the gym, but you're also spending half, I would guess, or more time on the track and doing Probably more. I'd say it's about two thirds to one third. So if it was like a yeah. three hour practice, probably two is on the track. One is in the weight room. 
So do you have like a, a skeleton? Yeah. Do you have like a skeleton of what you're going to do for like a typical week on the track for people? Um, as like how much time is dedicated to different parts of the race or like the full race or, you know, variations upon that. Yeah. Like usually one of the days we have will be more targeted towards starting and acceleration and things like that. One of the days will be targeted more towards upright running and the skill of upright sprinting. And then another big day we'll have is like a repeated effort or work capacity where you're running, you're running for longer. So you're starting to stretch up the speed or those are the most taxing days. So then we can select exercises or select what we're doing to kind of match the skill of that day, for example. Um, so that's one way that we can, we can do that. So I might put like, for example, if we run an, an upright day where the vertical force is, is really important, I might choose to do a deadlift or an RDL as my hip dominant movement because it's in a vertical position rather than a hip thruster. For example, um, again, there's a lot of different like theories or examples or situations I can, I can come up with, but that would be like off the top of my head, a way that you might modify it based on what we were doing in the track or to match the skill or the demands of what they were working yeah. on. No, that's cool. I mean, I, I do some of that same stuff for sure. Like I, um, you know, like on bench days is typically when you're going to see the accessory movements that are going to impact the bench press. You know, if I see somebody has a pec weakness, then you're going to do your pec flies or something like that on a bench day. You're not going to do them on the deadlift only day. You know, if I see someone has a hip extensor weakness, you're going to do your hip thrusters or your RTLs or your, you know, whatever kind of good mornings, something like that on your deadlift day. You're probably not going to do them on the squat day. And if somebody's, you know, got a quad weakness, you'll do that on the squat day to kind of match that, the demands of the day for sure. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you do uh, in terms of creating variations or changing or modifying the exercise because you I'm curious to hear your example because you're locked into certain exercises to some extent because of the sport. And so you may tweak and alter some of those exercises to continue to progress forward. So that way you're not just benching or squatting with the same rep and set scheme or the exact same exercise for a very long or extended period of time. I'm curious to hear how you potentially tweak or move things around in that regard to continue to drive the adaptation in people. Um, yeah. So I kind of, I mean, it always comes back to the individual. Um, and with regards to the competition specific movement, um, ideally every week we increase the weight. Um, but I'm looking more so at like how it's moving and how I want the speed to be for that particular person. Um, and then it's always, in terms of the weight, we're trying to stay in a range that's gonna be most beneficial for progress. Um, if they're hitting a wall and every set is maximal, like that's too heavy, we need to lower the weight. 
Um, and if it's a joke, then we need to increase it by more than we typically would. Um, so week to week, we're adding weight as we can, essentially. Um, at a certain point, that's going to stop. And that stopping point ends up being pretty consistent for each person. Like most athletes will progress on one specific stimulus between three and six weeks um, is what I found anyway. Um, so if somebody progresses for four weeks on a given stimulus, they'll do that same micro cycle for four weeks in a row. Um, and adding weight every week generally as they make progress. Uh, on that fourth week, they're going to stop making progress. So we will do a deload week at that point um, where everything changes. And the goal is going to be different movements to stay healthy, to um, work on things that we're not very good at, to you know decrease the stress on the nervous system and the joints and various connective tissues and things. Um, and then come into a new block. And then what's going to change between blocks is the rep scheme of the comp lift. Um, after working with someone for a while, you get a pretty good sense of the range in which they uh, progress well. Um, and yeah, it's interesting actually. One guy that I work with, he on any lift, um, like squat, bench, or deadlift, doing sets of more than five reps he will not make progress. Um, That's so, interesting. Yeah. So his high volume day is like a four by four. Um, and that's like the highest volume will really ever go for him for the most part. Um, well, that's and, a great example of like the individual characteristics. Like as you get to know a person, cause on paper that doesn't necessarily check out. Yeah, exactly. But, but as yeah, you start just, to work with the person, you're like, okay, this classifies as high volume. This classifies as low volume, for example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we'll start like a first block for him might be like a four by four on his, on his comp squats and deadlifts and, and bench probably as well. Um, and then he'll have a couple of variations. Um, and then the next block, it'll be maybe a five by three is like his main lift. Um, and then some different variations. And I found that decreasing the reps a little bit, like one or two reps per set kind of thing. Um, sometimes you'll change up, like, is it straight sets? Is it pyramid sets? Is it ramping sets? Is it like a top set with back downs? Um, like overwarm singles, things like that. Like those things will change from time to time as well. Um, but typically going from like fours and then to threes, and then maybe the next block are going to twos things like that um, and then changing the variation each block um, is enough to keep progressing and it's helpful too because you want to make sure that the stimulus is different enough from what came before it so that you keep progressing um, but it's also not like muddied at all um, so if you did like Maybe on your, if, if we're talking about squats, if you did uh, like a four by four for your main squat and then a four by four two count pause squat um, as your variation day, and then the next block you did like a three by four comp squat, uh, but a little bit heavier weight, and then a four by four two count pause squat or three count pause squat so it's a little bit different but it's still very very similar 
Um, maybe it's different enough to start making progress a little bit, but you're probably not going to make the same amount of progress you would expect as if it was something like a pin squat, com like completely different. Um, and then you don't really know, like, did this thing work or didn't it work? Or are they just not uh, receiving a new stimulus anymore? That kind of thing. And that's also part of the importance of the deload week to resensitize a little bit. Um, but yeah, I find that changing the rep scheme a little bit and changing the variations is enough to keep progressing. And I think that's, that's most of what I'll look at um, when I'm building a program is like, which variations work well, which rep schemes work well. Um, and then you kind of fill in the pieces with, um, with like the accessory movements and things like that to just address some weaknesses. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the big focus for sure. I use a similar approach as you actually with the kind of creating a variation in the exercise, uh, in the sense that the root exercise is not changing. So in the, the example you gave there with the, you know, squat in a certain rep scheme with a pause going to a pin squat, for example, something like that, you start to peel back the layers. It's still at its root. It's a squat. So you're not putting the person into a super unknown or uncomfortable position where we're going to move you from a two foot back squat to a single leg squat on a box or something like that. And then it's a completely different movement that they need to relearn in order to start making progress. Cause I'll use a similar, similar method where we're selecting, you know, X number of exercises for an individual. And then we modify and create variations of that same exercise to help drive the adaptation. So if there's a squat in there from day one and it works, chances are for the rest of the, you know, the season in this case, we're still going to use the squat the whole way through, but it's going to look different. It's going to be modified. And so what that does is like you mentioned, there's enough change in the stimulus to help drive adaptation or to get better at whatever it is you're, you're looking to address. But then we also minimize the time we need to spend learning and creating sound motor patterns because we're still working off of the same pattern that we had before. So it's kind of cool that we're using a bit of the same, you know, style of picking a few exercises that work and then modifying or creating variations off of that. Yeah, that is really cool. That is really cool. Cause yeah, it, it is very much, you know, we need to be squatting and then I'll take a look at, you know, what are the weaknesses in this particular athlete's squat? Okay, so we're going to keep the squat so we continue to work on our skill there, continue to see and incorporate change in that movement. Um, but on a separate day, what can we do with the squat to emphasize that specific skill? You know, and with those variations, typically I'm going to look at um, how can we change it to, well, first of all, is it a skill thing or is it a strength thing? Um, because how you're changing the exercise is going to change depending on, you know, what you're trying to do to it, you know, and if it's a skill thing, you're going to pair it with cues, of course. Um, and then you'll choose a variation that makes it either easier to do it the right way 
you know, we talked, we talked about tempos before um, as like slowing things down, not making it easier necessarily, but slowing things down. So you have the time to focus on the things you need to focus on. Um, or you're going to change it in a way that makes it really hard to do it the wrong way. Um, and I think I mentioned like a low pause deadlift is really good for teaching patients off the floor because if you uh, don't keep a good position off the floor, that pause is going to be really painful. Um, and then if you're looking at strength uh, variations, then you want to make sure that you're going into the range of motion or focusing at least on the range of motion that the desired muscle is doing most of the work and you're going to change the loading. Um, you know, maybe you're going to switch from a back squat to a front squat to target the quads more because if you can have someone a little bit more upright, um, a little more knee flexion, then the quads are going to do more work. And, you know, if you want to target the glutes in the deadlift, then you're going to raise them up because the glutes are going to do more of the work up top and you'll have them shift their hips back a little bit more, be a little bit more hinged over so that they're emphasizing that hip extension, something like that. Um, what kind of changes are you looking to do to like, you know, like we're talking about a hip thruster or a squat or something like that. How are you going to change that to emphasize different, um, attributes, I guess. And like, how are you, I think you're, you're probably focusing on different attributes at different points in the season as well. Yeah. So you're, you're pretty spot on with that. I like to use different variants of exercises to specifically target a quality or a trait. So if anyone out there who's listening has read super training by Sif Verkashansky and Yesis, that was the name that was escaping me. They, at one point in the, in the book, they talk about traits and characteristics of the muscle and they talk about functional traits of the muscle and they highlight 10 different functional traits that you can have. And that could be contraction velocity. So how quickly can the muscle lengthen and shorten? It could be nerve conduction velocity. So how quickly does the signal transmit from the brain to the muscles? Could be the ability for a muscle to be inhibited. For example, when another muscle is moving to make less resistance for a particular joint movement or whatever. Uh, could be the the threshold of a motor unit firing. There's there's 10 of them. And so those are obviously all traits or characteristics that we might be looking for in our in our athletes. So can they recruit a high number of motor units? Can they send signals quickly so they can move faster? Can they inhibit certain muscles to speed up the movement of opposing muscles? So I like basically what I've set up is 10 different variants of each of those core or root exercises. So a squat, hip hinge, something like that. And I've created 10 variations, each specifically targeting one of those functional traits of the muscle. Cause there's different things that you can do, for example, to, to target those types of things. So if you have a, a movement from a free fall, for example, there's a level of inhibition prior to, to the movement. So something like a drop jump 
is going to target that. So if I've been squatting with somebody and they know how to squat and that movement is sound, I can make the adjustment to have them drop off of a box and jump. And the root movement is very much the same. It's heavily rooted in that squat pattern. But now I'm changing the adaptation that they're going to get from it, for example. So I've, I've got it set up, at least for myself, like that with these kind of circular charts. Where in the middle, I have the root exercise. And then once I've decided on what exercises are working for what people, could be a squat, could be a vertical hinge, could be a single leg squat, uh, a push, vertical, horizontal, whatever. Um, I've created basically 10 or 11 of those. And then based on the time of the year, based on the qualities that we need, then I go, okay, here's the modification I have to make to that exercise in order to make it to target that specific trait or function of the muscle. And so I'll usually spend the time earlier in the year promoting quality in that particular movement. And then once somebody is squatting soundly or pulling soundly or pressing or whatever, now you can take advantage of all those different variations based on the, the qualities that, that you need. And one of the things, particularly for my scenario, working with track and field athletes, especially on the speed power side, where if we think about the typical linear progression of learning a movement, we get to the very fast and rapid movements very, very late because we think, okay, we have to create sound movement quality. We have to address mobility things. Then we can move into hypertrophy. Then we can move into some strength. Then we can move into maximal strength. Then we can work into the power, into the speed realm. So it becomes a very lengthy process where in reality, if somebody has a really sound squat pattern, you might be able to introduce some speed to that because if they're squatting well, they, they might be able to handle it. So it does allow too for kind of breaking some of the rules of that linear pattern that we often follow with, with progressions and can allow us to get into some of the speed and power stuff a little sooner with our athletes because our sport is so heavily dependent on that, especially from a sprinting and jumping perspective. Um, and then the sets and reps, I like to use Dr. Matt Jordan's chart uh, where he has the three zone category. So if you haven't seen that before, just Google Dr. Matt Jordan training chart or something like that. It's a red, blue, and green chart and it gives different sets and reps and tempo schemes to address certain qualities, whether it's, you know, late rate force development or maximal strength or muscle hypertrophy or something like that. And then I've just lined up, okay, these traits and characteristics are more zone one. These are more zone two. These are more zone three. And that's how I select the sets and reps. But yeah, that's a little bit the way that I, that I go about it is using that stuff. Cause I really do like those two resources, the, the muscle traits from super training and the training chart from Dr. Jordan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds like a really, really smart setup for sure. Really. And I think, yeah, if, if I were, uh, dealing more with people like athletes or, or track and field athletes specifically that need to be more in the, in the speed zone. And like, we don't, 
Like, I mean, we never get past max strength, really, you know, as powerlifters. Um, but yeah, you maybe do a little bit of stuff, right? That's a little faster. Oh yeah, at certainly. some points, just but it's it's not a like I can't imagine you're programming jump squats. I'm no, definitely never programming jump For squats. For example, yeah. Um, I yeah, there's some. I mean, there are definitely um, powerlifting coaches that uh, think that speed days are very important. Um, I see merit to them for sure. I don't know that it's the most beneficial thing to be doing, like to dedicate a lot of time to. Um, but for me, I think the speed, like I, I was mentioning before, um, like I, I look at the speed at which someone is moving the weight essentially to determine if we increase or decrease next week. Um, and that speed is very individual. And if you're looking typically at like bigger lifters, you know, like we were talking about like the 120 plus lifters, you know, when things get heavy and slow down for them, it's very, very taxing. So we're not going to spend very much time in actual like near maximal uh, territory. And it's also, um, they're just not going to progress as quickly in that range. Typically, you know, compared to smaller female lifters, um, you know, sometimes them squatting like 60% moves really similar to a big guy squatting 90%, you know, it's, it just looks different. Um, so in those cases, I think there might be a little bit more benefit to working on the speed, but strictly from a neural standpoint, I think, um, to drive that connection. But, um, no, I think that makes a lot of sense what you're saying because it definitely would expedite the process and you need to learn one exercise. You don't need to learn 50. And, um, and ultimately for us, it's a means to an end. Well, exactly. Like for you, it's different because that, that training modality is your sport. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I just need something that's going to create a specific adaptation in the muscle. And then the athlete's going to have to take that ad adaptation to the track or the field and apply it to whatever their event is. So if someone's developing max strength through a back squat or a front squat, does it really matter for them? Probably not because at the end of the day, they're going to have a change in the amount of muscle fibers they can recruit, the tension they can produce, and then they're going to have to transfer that into the sporting environment anyway. Yeah. And all that matters for them is that they do it well. So however they can get there. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And there's no use, you know, forcing a, a triangle into a square hole, you know, because if, if somebody's already good at squatting, it doesn't, you don't need them to do a lunge variation. If they can squat, then just let them do that. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, what are the, I'm just curious, I guess what you mentioned, I think 11, what are the, like the core lifts that you, I uh, typically oh, use for people. I try to go by memory. So I have a, a chart for squat a chart for split stance, and that would account for split stance with both feet on the ground, a rear foot elevated split squat or a front foot, because you still have both feet stabilizing and contributing to the movement. Then I have a third knee dominant one for true single leg. So if it was like a pistol squat or like a single leg squat where one leg is elevated on a box and the other one is off. So that way there's only one foot in contact as you're performing the movement. 
Then I have a chart for horizontal hinging, so based around the hip thruster. And then one for vertical, so that could be barbell, trap bar, doesn't matter, but RDLs, deadlift, variations like that. Um, I have one for vertical pressing, horizontal pressing, pull-ups, and rows. So I don't know what that equates. Is that like 10? I wasn't counting. Yeah, yeah, eight, eight or 10, something like that, yeah. One, okay. two, three, four, five, six, nine, if I've added them correctly. Mm-hmm. My math isn't so good, so <laughs> let me know if I added them wrong. <laughs> so then um, based on what you've seen from somebody in the weight room, you'll uh, over time decide like this person's a squatter. This person is really good at squats. So we'll just, they are going to stay in that circle or this person's a hip thruster. So they're going to stay in that circle um, just based on their competencies and then ver- uh, change whatever, change those exercises to, um, to produce the adaptation you're looking for from there. Yeah. And it, it, it will vary. So like, for example, right now we're back in the weight room with the team for the first time this week as of the recording. Uh, so this may come out or this will come out later than when we've actually recorded, but this is our first week in the weight room. And for example, on Monday and Wednesday are big lifts. I have a squat on both days, but the hip hinge on the one day is a hip thruster or a horizontal based and the hip hinge on the other day is a vertical based. So that way I'm attacking the hamstring and hip extension and in some different positions. Um, and then on one day there's a push on one day there's a pull. And then I've left again, then I have a, like a wild card exercise, for example, that's, that's where if it's like, Hey, I think we need something that's a little more single leg, or maybe we want something to, you know, Maybe we want weightlifting in there. Maybe we want, you know, anything like that. Then there's room to, you know, account for those things as we move into different phases. But yeah, as of right now, the plan would be to keep that skeleton the same. And then I'm going to modify those exercises based on where we end up going for training with with our athletes, which is more unpredictable this year than usual because we don't necessarily have a competition schedule to prepare for. So I don't have a great idea of what we're doing five months from now as we're normally, I'd say, well, we're competing. So we're probably doing something like this, but, but yeah, I don't know if that answers. Yeah. Definitely what you were looking for. Um, yeah. And I was like the adaptation you're trying to produce will change throughout the year. Like as you get closer to competition, you're going to be focused a little bit more on speed related things, whatever that zone is. And a little bit further away, you mentioned you're focusing primarily on movement quality and then it's going to be more strength focused and then progressing from there. Yeah, exactly. Right now there's a couple, there's obviously rookies that we're working with people who've never lifted. So we have to make sure that they're sound with whatever movement we're going to, move them forward with and even some of our vets they've they've had a month off or some of them were inconsistent with their training through the summer because there was no season so yeah we just need to get everyone moving well again with those patterns and then we can start to okay let's make this more strength-based let's make this more 
reactive or let's build a, you know, a rate of force development component into this. And then we can start to make adjustments based on the time of the year and what they end up actually needing to be prepared for, which is the unknown right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, I imagine that ends up being pretty like by feel instead of planned out, you know, like I, for most people, especially if you're working at like the varsity level, they're probably pretty proficient in what they're doing. Um, you know, but if you're comparing like an Olympic level athlete, they're going to spend, I assume, not very much time in strength and max strength, uh, like throughout the year. They'll do some for sure, but not a lot, I don't think. And most of it would be speed power speed, you know, that kind of thing versus obviously somebody who's, you know, maybe just starting their high school track career is going to spend almost in the entirety of their time in strength because and learning the movement. They need. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, they're, yeah, the older athletes are definitely bringing in a better base mm-hmm. so you can progress through things more quickly or spend more time on things that they wouldn't have spent as much time earlier in their career because mm-hmm. they were effectively building the foundation for, for what they need to do. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's overall for me, that's kind of how I select and choose and apply like exercise selection and what I'm doing with, with athletes. And this, yeah. this wouldn't really change with, with other sports mm-hmm. like the scale yeah. or the model or the system that I use, I would have to apply it to different sports differently and select different exercises. But the underlying principles or the structure that I use would remain intact mm-hmm. and does. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, I am uh, really curious actually, if somebody is a squatter, we'll say, um, how would their, like, I, I have an easy time picturing like max strength and like all those kind of, um, earlier in the periodization plan. Um, those are easier for me to picture like a squatter compared to a hip thrusterer. Um, hip thrusterer. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But how would their, like, what are you going to do with a hip thrusterer versus a squatter in terms of like rate of force development, development or speed or like on those big days? Like what is, what are you changing about the movement? Um, just because in my head, like a hip thruster and a squat are just so far separated, you know? Yeah. So for example, you could do something like, so when I talked about the, the example of the free fall. So someone in a squat could be up on a box, mm-hmm. drop and jump. And you have that free fall component. You could set somebody up on a, a bench, for example, and like put their shoulders on a bench doing a hip thruster. And you can bring up to the top. And then you have one leg in contact and then you have to like switch feet while stabilizing. Mm-hmm. Cause now you're in some state of a free fall effectively because you only had one foot on the ground and one foot comes off and then mm-hmm. you have to switch and get the other foot back down while remaining relatively stable. So it requires a quick movement and for you to catch and yield and stabilize yourself. For example, if you wanted to make that modification, you could, you could use bands around the waist anchored to the squat rack if you wanted to do more of like a speed-oriented or accelerative movement compared to the barbell, for example. Um, so, I mean, there's some interesting 
I'll describe them as variations that you could you could potentially play around with. Yeah, I, I never would have thought about that. That's really really cool. Like yeah. I said, they're 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 interesting. They're yeah. they're different. That's for sure. Well, I mean, yeah, and they I'm sure that they look silly, you know, but like you say, it's a means to an end. Exactly. So, but yeah, that would be an example if. I can send you the charts too if you want to look at them. Then, yeah, definitely. I'd be really interested if to you're see just that. Curious to to see yeah. them. Um, and then yeah, the other thing I was wondering about because we, I mean, we talk a lot about what's going on in the weight room, but like you're spending, like you said, two thirds of the time out on the track. And so, what's going into like some of those decision making, and like, does it change depending on like? Is someone like a a hundred meter sprinter going to spend more time in acceleration work than a four hundred meter sprinter, or you know, is like a different person going to spend more time in different drills for like even if they're they need to like two people need to develop the same skill, are they going to do different drills depending on you know? Yeah, the drills were changed because we have so many different coaches. Mm-hmm. working in so many different groups, the general structure will remain the same. So whether you're a short sprinter, long sprinter, hurdler, you're still going to follow that Excel upright and call it work capacity or repetitive effort or speed endurance day. So you're still going to have those three days as your structure. Obviously the distances change for, for the different groups um, with the shorter groups using shorter distances and presumably faster velocities in some cases than the other groups and the drills that people select, that's going to be based on the coach because every coach has a different philosophy or a different way of doing things. So that one becomes a lot more like open-ended and like if you were here at the facility and watching a practice, you would see all those groups potentially doing very different things, not necessarily because, the way they sprint is super different or anything like that, but just because the philosophies of, of the coaches is a little bit different. So some of them put more value in certain things than, than others. And that's reflected in the drills that they, that they do. But it gets a lot messier on the track to kind of figure out what's going on compared to in the weight room. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Cause there's a lot going on out there. What are some of your go-to's? I guess, like your favorite drills to do on the track? I get, like simple, the essentials. Like I, I'm not someone who uses a lot of super fancy drills. Um, I have a couple of drills I'll use for acceleration, a couple of drills I'll use to get people upright. And like, let's get good at them. Because at the end of the day, we have to sprint and we have to sprint fast in order to get faster. So... I don't like to spend too much time on like all these wild or crazy, crazy drills. Like I think if you're using hills or sleds that can help you develop some good acceleration mechanics and patterns. If you're using wickets or stairs to run uh, that can help you develop some good upright running mechanics. And so keep it relatively simple, use those things. And then, and you still have to run, still have to accelerate, on flat surface, still have to accelerate and get up to an upright position on, you know, a flat surface. So that's kind of where it, I, again, I take a similar kind of what are the essentials approach to, mm-hmm. to the track as well. Yeah. 
Good stuff. Good stuff. What about selecting music mm. for you? For do you have a, do you, do you select music in the same way you select exercises or do you just pick it? Hmm. You know, I guess to an extent, you know, like you identify uh, what it is that's missing from the equation and you try to, you know, pick and pick in place. Um, yeah, it's an, I've never thought about it that way, but to an extent, you know, um, this week I, well, I haven't really been in the gym that much this week, actually. Um, and lately when I've been in the gym, I've just been reading, um, reading this book, actually. I'll just keep showing the audience the books that I'm reading. Uh, the Blade Itself by Joe Abercrombie. Um, educated. Well, not really. It's fantasy, but kind of. Reading is still um, smart. Yeah. Um, but when I've been doing work this week, I have been listening to the Pitch Perfect soundtracks. Interesting. I've been, I've been loving it. I am a huge Pitch Perfect fan. Um, I think each movie, the plot gets worse, but the music gets better. Um, so and you're there for the music, everything. right? Yeah, exactly. So, so balances it out for me. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been uh, nice. Another uh, distracting um, music selection, I guess, because I can't help myself from dancing and singing as long as I'm doing work. So, hey, right on, right on. Yeah, how about you? I've been I've been listening a little bit more to EDM this week, um, and it's I've been listening a lot to the Phantoms. Still, I know we had a conversation about this ourselves, you know, last week or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I'm hooked on listening to stuff by Phantoms, but I'm still, I'm still on that train this week. <laughs> still been, been jamming out to that stuff. Yeah. So, I did actually check them out after that conversation a little bit. And they're, they got some good stuff. They're, it's they're more some really catchy things. More of like a, like a jazzy bouncy kind of EDM. It's, it didn't feel so electronic. You know. No, yeah, I that's what I mean. Like they're an EDM band of some kind, but I don't know again, I'm not an EDM expert, so I don't know mm-hmm. what specific category they, they fall into, but it's it's catchy, it's poppy, it's a lot of fun to listen to. Yeah. Got everything so, you need. That put me in a good mood for this week. hmm Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well I guess that's I mean, I've lost count of the episodes now. But Yeah, it's it's the end of the episode. That's the end of the episode, and that was the Speed Strength Show. Thanks for coming along, world. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy, and we'll see you next week. Peace.